Good morning. A quick, a, a quick announcement uh, regarding uh, two weeks from now, October 29th, I believe, uh, we will be having baptisms after the service, and then after the baptisms, we'll also be having a, a potluck afterwards to celebrate that. Uh, so if we have a handful of baptisms already, if you have not been baptized and you're a believer um, in Christ, then um, get baptized. Amen. So uh, that, that's really, there's no deep theological discussion to be had, people. And so if you, have, if you are a believer and you have not been baptized, please, please come and talk to one of the elders that, to, to discuss kind of talking about your, your testimony of coming to faith so that um, you may be baptized. Uh, so now, uh, we are continuing the gospel according to Matthew. We're in chapter 19. We've just come out of uh, chapters 16 through 18, if you were kind of taking sections. In 16 through 18, we have a, a very amplified teaching of the people in the kingdom, uh, the church, uh, what, it, what the, these kingdom um, citizens and this, this new kingdom look like. And now, in really in 19 and 20, the teaching is going to kind of focus on some pretty significant areas of life. And so um, 19 in particular is going to be talking about marriage, divorce, family, and money. And so after saying all that, no one get up and leave and not show up until 20 is over. Uh, but the reality is, is that this will be perhaps uncomfortable or or hearkening or bringing back to pain of some area in your life. Uh, and, never, and know that that's never the intention of, of anyone who's behind the pulpit here at Trinity Bible Church, but that the reality of sin and the reality of, of the clarity of Scripture in certain areas uh, will call us all at times to take great account of ourselves. And so I say all that as we enter into the teaching this morning. We are covering the first six verses of Matthew chapter 19. If you're visiting here for the first time, uh, what I'll do is I'll read through the verses out loud together while you listen, and we will read along, and then ask you to take an opportunity to pray silently to God, and then I'll pray corporately for us before we enter into the time of teaching. But looking now at the gospel according to Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the word of God. Please take this time to pray.
Heavenly Father, as your church gathers on the Lord's Day, we come to worship and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by his blood, his people gathered from every tribe, every tongue, every people, he continuously calls to himself until he returns. Lord, we gather here in recognition that we are redeemed. We are citizens of this kingdom that he is building. And we'll be a part of it in its fullness when he returns. And we will rejoice in the time when we are no longer at battle with the enemy within our own sinful nature. That in the resurrection of the dead, we will celebrate a time of sinless perfection, purchased by the blood of Christ. But until such a time, we are at war. At war with our own sin nature, empowered by the Holy Spirit to flee temptation, and yet so often we fail. God, remind us this morning, your people, of your power, of your grace, and of your mercy, and your never-ending forgiveness for your people. Draw us through the word closer to you. Bring our eyes off of ourselves into your glory. And by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, may the word we read this morning, may the Spirit illuminate our hearts and minds to the truth of the word. May we be transformed inwardly. And our life would change more and more as a journey of a sojourner, of an alien in this fallen world, one seeking their home. Strengthen your people this morning, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This will be probably a few strange weeks of of sermons. This will be the beginning of kind of what will end in a few probably at least two or three sermons just on this short section on marriage and divorce. Uh, Bo will be preaching next week, and he'll be preaching from 1 John. And then the 29th, uh, where we have the baptism, is also historically known as Reformation Day, and I'm not passing that up. <laughs> so more than likely, November will continue with, with these particular verses. And so this morning, the focus is going to be while talking about divorce and talking about marriage, the emphasis of the text this morning is going to be talking about marriage and what it is, Uh, simply for the verses that Jesus is alluding to and quoting out of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so if you come out of this thinking, he didn't really talk much about divorce, well, it's coming. But the reality is is that 
after everything that's gone on with the teaching with Jesus, with the, with the pronouncement of Peter, with the understanding of, of now they've acknowledged at least these 12 that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And in 16, Jesus had already instructed him that he must go to Jerusalem and has even told him he must go there to be humiliated, beaten, die, and be raised again. This, the 12 have been introduced with what's happening. So in the midst of the teaching of the last two chapters, perhaps the reader loses sight of the fact that Jesus is still marching towards this destiny of his. The, this, this time of ultimate humiliation, of the sacrifice on the cross. And it's in the background of that, when we get into the details of whatever teaching or instruction or, or incident happens within the narrative of the gospel, from here on out, the, the big framework that's happening up until that moment is Jesus is with purpose going to his death. He's with purpose continuing towards the ultimate humiliation of the Son of God for His people, for you and I, and for all who call in the name of Christ. So as He's now continuing this, we see things that were thematic earlier in the book, just here in these first couple of verses. Jesus had finished these sayings in verse 1. He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And here we have again, and large crowds followed him and, and he healed them there. This was often the case of the early ministry that we have in the gospel, where everywhere he went, people were brought to Jesus and either he would teach or generally would teach and then he would also heal the sick. The whole point of that is something that also happened earlier in the gospel where the pronouncement was made, no one has ever taught like this in Israel. These works that have been done have never been done in Israel. And so it was supposed to always point these people of the word back to their history and understand Elijah, Elisha, Moses. No one's ever done or taught the things that this Jesus, this son of a carpenter, has done and continues to do. They were always supposed to be marveled at that and wonder at the question, is this the one? So he continues on the same way, having mercy on the sick and the downtrodden. He's having pity on those and showing grace by still continuing to teach and heal. And the crowds we mentioned, I've mentioned many times, were always there with Jesus wherever he went. This, this word is meant to just show that a, a group of large people following Jesus, some of whom would become followers or believers in him, but most of whom would not. And intermingled with the crowds, you have the disciples. And the disciples, the often is that word is entailing those who are following him and believing him and might not necessarily is probably a larger group of people, but also sometimes, depending on the context around it, is speaking specifically to the twelve or the three or, in, or some number of those who would become the apostles. So we have the crowds mentioned. We know the disciples are with him. And here they come. These ones we haven't seen in a few chapters, but we were quite common in the background of the earlier chapters. We haven't seen them since chapter 16, as a matter of fact. The Pharisees. And wherever Jesus was and where people were being drawn to him, the religious leaders at the time who wanted him dead 
We're always going to be amongst the crowd. And there was always this idea of let's trap Jesus and getting him to say something that would constitute him breaking the law where we can get the people to stop following him. And, and of course, anyone who's even been a casual reader of any of the Gospels know the success rate of their endeavor was not very high. So here they come, the Pharisees. They came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? When I first started preparing for this this week, the first question I had jotted down before any real research is like, why this question? It's a very strange question. And as the crowds are with them, we know that Jesus has been tested on other points of what were very strange questions. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Remember that one? Jesus was often tested on things, and we we kind of like scratch our heads and go, where did this come from? Well, as a matter of fact, for it might be such times as we mentioned this, most of the things that Jesus is contending against are items that have to do with a particular tradition that had risen up about a century before this time, and it's known as Mishnah. And Mishnah was a collection of Jewish, Jewish teachers who would essentially write commentary or their thoughts on the law. And they particularly would break down piece by piece a law and then determine the ways in which you could break it or the ways in which you could stretch it to where it might begin to fray but not quite break, which is always a super good way to look at the law especially a moral law, right? How can I stretch this enough to where I don't think I'm breaking it? And so they asked this question, when is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so for some, this will be a a different sermon where we're specifically talking about divorce, but just so you understand the context of this, this is taken from, or the question is, is predominantly from the book of Deuteronomy, and you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it really quickly. It's from chapter 24, starting in 1. Moses wrote, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. And that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is the law which would then in Mishnah be dissected into entire books on on how you could divorce your wife. And also understand, women had zero rights in this at all. And so that's why he's asking Jesus, he's asking this one who calls himself a rabbi or a teacher, what is this, how many times may you divorce? Or what is lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And one of the things we have the advantage of that's fairly new in English translations is if you say, if you're reading along and you have an ESV or something like that, 
You'll have something where it talks where he finds some indecency in her. And the word itself is related to nakedness. And the idea behind it was if there was something indecent that the wife did or something like that. That's why it's written like that in English. But in Hebrew, it's a word that's very similar to a word that is like basically the idea of saying like of any course or of any cause whatsoever. And so the way it was dissected in Mishnah was that the translation was favored of any idea or any cause. And to the time of Jesus, one of the most popular rabbi authors in the Mishnah put in it that this meant if a man saw another woman who was prettier than his wife and he became displeased with his wife, he could divorce her and marry that woman. I'm not making it up. Get a copy of the Mishnah, I dare you. And number one, you'll be one of my favorite people here. If you, if you read the Mishnah, and I read it all, I was like, wow. Uh, favorites. Uh, so, but the reality is that's the, that's the backdrop of this challenge to Jesus. And by the way, this law, which if you're paying attention to it, is a warning. Moses is warning the men not to divorce their wives for frivolous reasons and then regret it after she gets remarried and want to take her back again because that's then when they are going to be breaking the law. So he's telling them, here's the law of divorce. Don't rush into this. And even then, we're not getting into that today, but I have to give you to the backdrop of this is what Pharisees and what was prevalent teaching at the time. The prevalent teaching of the time wasn't some type of moral indecency of the wife. It was anything that displeased the husband. Hopefully no men in the room are going, the good old days. Because imagine, flip it around. We live in a world of no-fault divorce now in the West. I don't like how he snores. Or the way he smells. Or that he used to have so much luxurious hair. (laughs) But now it grows elsewhere. (laughs) He didn't have five children, but for some reason he gained a hundred pounds. Now we're laughing. But these are all cases you can look up in public record of, of... Women asking for divorce. So the reality is at the time of Jesus, there were no rights. In the time we live in, there's kind of a lot of what you would call an egalitarian view of of divorce. Anyone can get divorced from anyone for almost any reason conceivable. So we're not far removed from the Mishnah and how at least our society, and if the numbers play out in terms of divorce and churches go, or in confessing Christians, we're right there along with the Pharisees. Any reason whatsoever that he or she displeases me. And so in the backdrop of this horrifying view of divorce and marriage. 
Jesus' answer causes us to look not to Deuteronomy. He causes the entire conversation to shift to creation and the ideal of marriage. So giving away the ending, Christian marriage is the reality of two sinful people coming together in a covenant, sacred union. And in that marriage, they are to, as professing believers, reflect God's glory in the midst of the good, the bad, and the ugly. But Jesus doesn't even go there yet. He simply says, wait, don't you know the scriptures? Have you not read? By the way, that's, that's when Jesus says, have you not read to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the religious leaders of the time? He always is saying, you clearly don't know the scriptures. So as an example, don't, but I have to say, because some of you are quite argumentative, don't take that as license to go. If someone quotes a scripture and they don't quite get it right, you're like, have you not read? What would Jesus do? No. This is what he, Matthew wrote that Jesus responded with. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And so Jesus turns to the account of creation here in Genesis 1 is his first quote. It's in 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then he'll, the next quotation is from 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So beginning in one, he goes back to the very creation. The pinnacle of the creation account is the creation of man. We all know this. He took dust from the ground, breathed life into it, and Adam was created. And then he saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone, so he needed a companion. And he took all other creatures created from the dust of the ground, brought them before Adam. Adam names them all, showing that he has a certain amount of authority and sovereignty over them. And no companion was found fit for Adam. So instead of the dust of the ground, the sleep is put on Adam and a part of his own flesh is removed and God creates woman. Adam is woken up. He sees woman who is not named Eve yet and he rejoices. Finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now, The poetry of the whole account of creation of man and woman 
is woman is part of man. Taken from man. She's created uniquely different and uniquely for man. Yes, some of you may be thinking in very cultural terms like, well, that does away a lot of the nonsense going on. Of course it does away with all of the nonsense that's going on in our culture today about men and women. But that's not what we're talking about today. And then, as Jesus is quoting the word of Genesis 1, what is so unique about them is that they're in the image, they're image bearers, each of them, utterly unique, utterly sacred in their individual persons, and yet created them for each other. Meaning, the missing aspect in the Hebrew is showing that man needs that peace back. That's the whole way that it's, it's written. That's why it's written that way. And so as Adam rejoices, looking up more in 2.23, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this is the, what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. He's not saying, look at the hardness of your own heart, your own depravity, your own all these other things, what you desire to turn the law into so that you might do whatever you please. Look instead to how God started marriage. Marriage is essential to how the created order was going to reflect God's glory. As man and woman are put together and they're going to be told to be fruitful and multiply a godly seed on the earth. That, that's called, known as the cultural mandate. And the reason was is that a godly man and a godly woman would raise godly children, and their children would be raised with the purpose of pointing their children to the God who they owed all their existence and who deserved all the glory. And so then when, he, when Jesus talks about chapter 2, or quotes chapter 2, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Understanding that in, in, like say, in ancient Israelite culture, honoring mother and father, there was really only one thing that was preeminent over that. Honoring God. And so the the way this is written of, of leaving, and or cleaving as often people say, but the idea of leaving and becoming one flesh with husband and wife was was this unbelievable pronouncement of how important marriage is. So marriage is at the beginning in the center of God's plan for his glory to take over the earth, to Edenize earth do you do you understand without marriage and without families and godly offspring who then also are being married and also having godly offspring as it spreads around god's creation is to show all of creation's god's glory through the godly seed across the earth in his creation by the way 
the marriage aspect of it and the language and how it's used in the New Testament of Christ as the bridegroom and as the church as the bride. And the bride is being purified and presented to Christ. That language then is showing this future aspect of where the godly seed, the church, is called to glorify God on the earth through the power of the Spirit. Marriage at the beginning, marriage at the end, in the here and now, the man and woman together, Jesus speaks to in a profound way. They shall become, the man shall leave his mother and father, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The way this is written is to make you see something kind of vividly clear. The man and the woman come together and are one. The peace that's taken out of Adam or man, when a man marries a wife, that peace is reunited with him. And so it's not taken away again. He's whole again. She's whole again. And so marriage is viewed as this, not a contract, as the Pharisees are looking at it, that this was a contract where someone could could void the contract and write a certificate of divorce to the woman so that she could show it to the next man that she married. I'm legally divorced. You won't break the law if you divorce me. But it's not a contract. It's a sacred covenant. And that's why Jesus is saying, like, what... What God has put together, let no man take asunder. So so his response to the Pharisees is a rebuke of their callousness. And he'll go on later in the verses to talk about the hardness of their heart. But the coming together and becoming one flesh once again, yes, it's alluding to the physical relationship of a husband and a wife. And the reality of the importance of that. But the language used is to show that the one flesh is the idea of their one substancing, meaning husband and wife. Yes, it's talking about the physical union, but it's talking about husband and wife now being joined together are of one substancing. And it sounds weird, but that's the best English way to to kind of say it. Will you nod for me? Okay, see, okay, so someone else who's who's a Hebrew guy. And so this one substancing aspect is how marriage is supposed to be looked at. We're together bound by covenant promise. And that covenant promise means that our lives, that's the greatest thing that we have. Our children will one day grow up and move out and we're still together. We may have other relatives that move in from times from sickness or moving, but they're going to move out hopefully too, right? And then, and then we are still here. This covenant that cannot break. That was Adam and Eve's expressed beauty here in chapter 2. Together as one substance, as one creature. And it has more to do than with just the physical. It has to do with everything. 
What goes wrong? Well, chapter 3, right? Have you ever considered the fact that Satan's first attack on God's creative order is marriage? He attacks this togetherness, this oneness. When he goes to Eve and whispers to her, although it seems textually that Adam's close enough to to watch it happen, or at least there's a closeness to him, but marriage is attacked by Satan. And there's no substancing that's happening. Sin enters. And what's the first dispute? What have you done? Nothing. She, the one you you gave to me. She gave it to me and I ate it. That's like a child's argument. Who hit your sister? My hand. (laughs) I don't know how it did it. I don't know how it got there. But for sure it was my hand. Adam blames his wife when his covenant responsibility was to protect her. Remember? Nurture. Watch over. Shepherd. Those were his duties. And then from that point forward, one author, one of my favorite authors in the Old Testament, used the phrase, at that point in redemptive history, Satan begins to gnaw at God's family. And the idea he's expressing is to beginning to bite and chew and work away. It's, it's, it's a gross image, but it's a very vivid and true one. Because then the first murder takes place through family, through jealousy. And then so those, their own children, remember the job, the godly offspring reflect God's glory. Instead, because of willfully going into temptation and sin, murder. And then all you have to do is look at, just have a brief remembrance, if you've read Genesis at all, through all the wonderful marriages that are in Genesis. It's a who's who of what not to do in marriage. Fear for your life. Say she's your sister. Abraham gives away his wife at every turn that he fears for his life. Isaac and Rebecca. Seemingly a marriage where no one's talking to each other anymore. Choose favorite sons to the destruction of their son's relationship. Too many details about Jacob to even, we don't even have time for. (laughs) Seemingly a simpleton, but also a genius schemer. And at the same time, Sisters are broken in their relationship because they're buying and selling time with their own husband in order that they might have the honor of bearing this clown's children. And on and on it goes. 
David's wife, Saul's daughter, comes to a place of hating him. We, Solomon, not even, I'm not even going to make no time. <laughs> Satan targeted marriage at the beginning. And he's targeted God's people called by his name and their marriages since then. And if and I'm just here to tell you today, I am not a pragmatic man, like many of you are. But I do like big theological ideas that help guide me. My marriage is the most honest reflection of my relationship with God in my life and in yours. That person, your husband or your wife, that you've agreed to this covenant binding institution to is the proving ground of your faith. And yet, Jesus doesn't make room in this argument to even acknowledge the insipid, shallow stupidity of Mishnah. It's, it's almost a place of mourning that he's going, don't you, don't you remember? Marriage is about glorifying God. In your covenant fidelity to your husband and to your wife, that is the reflection that you believe that. And Christ, in his humiliation, whatever struggle you've had now and in your past and in your future in your marriage, Christ understands it. while never falling to temptation, but being tempted, while in fullness fulfilling God's law for you and me, in our weakness, in our sin, just like Adam, and just like all the marriages you see in all of the Old Testament, we hurt each other. We wrong each other. We sin against each other. We at times ignore each other. Grow cold to one another. Stop talking to one another. Resign ourselves to a loveless, lack of physicality marriage and say, that's just the way it is. <laughs> no. No, stop. I mean, that's when Jesus is pointing back to Adam and Eve. He's telling them, stop, stop this. this, this it, what is lawful for a man to divorce his wife if he finds a prettier girl or, if, or she annoyed him or this, and then no fault divorce today, snoring, body hair, whatever it might be. Like, like no. Stop looking at yourself and what you desire in the here and now and the frivolity and the blindness of your own sinfulness 
and rather look to the ideal that Christ sets forward for us. Man shall leave his family, cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh, one purpose, one ideal to glorify God in the midst of their marriage. Through the good, the bad, and lots of ugly. And when I was saying I wasn't a pragmatic man, because I'm not giving you five points of advice how to make your marriage better. There's 3,000 books that were printed last year about that. I'm here to give you the theological understanding today. Your marriage is more than likely more than you realize. It is of greater importance than I think maybe most grasp. A covenant sealed by God himself. Let no man take asunder. And if you are in a place in your marriage where you feel like you have nowhere to go, it is time to talk to somebody. The marriage of a man and a woman who call themselves by the name of Christ is how it all started. It's preeminent through all of Scripture. That glorifying God through the way you treat one another, speak to one another, and view each other as a glorious gift has to be realized, has to be worked on, has to be your greatest task. And I pray for the marriages of our church and for the marriages of the church universal as a, as a clarion call to the glory of God in understanding, forgiveness, and the best days ahead. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Heavenly Father, I pray as we meditate on your word and we consider its implications. God, we acknowledge that we are sinners. And as we talk about Christian marriage, we're sinners married to sinners. God, help us against our own self-righteousness when we're hurt or judgment or holding grievances for years. God, let us remember the ideal 
that our marriage is a reflection of the first marriage in the small way of a covenant in a cleaving. And God, in a much larger way, our Christian marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church. And as we anticipate at all times His return, as when we look around the world and the situations everywhere, we say, please, Lord, come. Where Christ will be joined with His bride, the church, purified and holy. Until such a time, Lord, let husbands and wives cleave to one another. For your glory and the good of the church, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.